My name is uh, Chris Genders. I'm pastor of student ministry, lead student pastor for the church. And uh, I, I need a little more energy out of you because I just spent a week with about 275 middle school students. And uh, they have a lot of energy. They had a lot of energy at Miracle Camp this past week. Um, so I, I took students up there on Sunday. Um, and uh, we had students that were from Great Oaks that were involved in the summer camp. Uh, but then while I was there, I was also had the opportunity to be the chapel speaker for um, a, an event called Shake Up Kalamazoo. And it's kind of a, a mashup of a summer camp and missions trip. And so uh, we had four youth groups there from different states, and they uh, would serve throughout the day in Kalamazoo, Michigan at different sites. And um, I would go into town during the daytime to, to connect with them and see what they're doing and, and to meet the leaders of these different organizations and uh, encourage the students in their work. And then uh, would come back to camp and spend time with our students at camp. And then at night we had um, Shake Up had its own uh, worship and chapel session that I spoke at each night. And so I was excited to go away uh, to camp for the week. And we loaded up last Sunday and uh, I'm, I'm on the road for about an hour. And uh, Ethan, my 16-year-old, calls and he says, hey, Dad, did you mean to leave your laptop here at the church this morning? No, son, I did not mean to leave my laptop at the church. I was planning on writing a sermon on my laptop this week. So I had the, uh, the joy and the privilege of uh, going to a coffee shop this week with my iPhone and sitting there at a table like this, <laughs> writing out this sermon. So if it doesn't make any sense, blame that or the coffee I was drinking at the coffee shop. I don't know. I don't know what it was. So, uh, But hopefully it all makes sense. Um, in fact, what I want to ask of you guys this morning is, as we're talking, um, imagine that I have invited you to sit down in a coffee shop with me, and uh, it's just you and me, and we're going to dive into Colossians chapter 2, uh, 16 through 23, and we're going to uh, discover what Paul has to say to us today, and we're going to wrestle through, through some things that, that are, are kind of difficult. There's some tension we're going to experience today um, as we dive into this, some things that maybe we're going to brush up against that we're, we're not real uh, fond of. Uh, because it's going to challenge us. So let me, let me start with, you know, we've just sat down, we've got our coffee, and uh, let, me, let me start with these questions. Do you ever feel like you're not measuring up in your faith? Do you, ever, do you ever feel like you just aren't good enough for Jesus? That, that if, if he knew who you really were, if he knew the thoughts that you had, the actions you performed, the words that you say, by the way, he does, that if he really knew you, that maybe he wouldn't love you? Do you ever feel like, as you look around at, at other followers of Jesus around you, that you just don't, don't match up with them, you don't, don't compare well with them because you know who you are? I, I, I struggle with this all the time. Man, there, there's not a day that goes by that I'm not a mess when it comes to this. There's not a day goes by that, that I haven't said something that I wasn't supposed to say done something I wasn't supposed to do or think something I wasn't supposed to thought. And as I look around the landscape of, of ministry world and I look at these other pastors and church leaders and I look at you guys as church members, there's times where I'm like, man, I'm just falling short. Like I wish I had the faith of, of this person or I wish I had the passion of this person or the conviction and character of this person. And I just, I, I beat myself up. Any of you there? And you've been there? Or, or maybe the other side. You, you look at, at followers of Jesus around you and you go, wow, that person, they need to get their act together. They do not have this Jesus thing figured out. They are 
Woo! They are really blowing it as a follower of Jesus. You know, you, you, you ever look at somebody and go, man, I wish they had their act together because I'm pretty sure Jesus doesn't love them very much if they keep doing what they're doing. You, you ever look at somebody and, and kind of judge them because maybe they don't believe the same thing you believe about Christianity? Maybe they have a different theological position. Maybe they, they have a different, you know, conviction about what life as a follower of Jesus is supposed to look like. So, so don't answer this question out loud. If we were in a coffee shop, I would ask you to answer this question. But since we're not, don't throw it out because that's going to throw me off. Uh, but fill in the blank in your head. A good Christian, a good follower of Jesus is someone who does blank. You know, somebody that you look at and you go, man... This person, I know they're a follower of Jesus because they blank. Conversely, uh, the opposite side of that question, uh, somebody who's not a good Christian, or, or here, maybe this way to say it, a good Christian is somebody who doesn't fill in the blank. What is that thing that, as you look at yourself or the people around you, and you say, man, a good Christian wouldn't do that, wouldn't say that, wouldn't think that, wouldn't hold that position we all know that there, there's numerous expectations that, that we put on ourselves and that others put on ourselves and that we put on other people for how a Christian is supposed to live. Some of these things find their basis in Scripture, and they're valid and they're good. A lot of times, though, they're man-made rules and regulations, and they're not exactly reflective of the Bible teaches. I have a friend of mine that uh, grew up in a Christian home, and his father's dating advice when he became a teenager uh, was summed up, and you've probably heard this phrase before, and not original with him, uh, don't cuss, don't drink, don't chew, and don't date girls who do, right? <laughs> like, that was the benchmark. That was the expectations that this guy had for his son. You want to be a good Christian teenager dating? Don't drink, don't cuss, don't chew, and don't date girls who do. You know, and, and, and we all laugh at that, Right? And we do, but, but the reality is we kind of fall prey to that sometimes. I don't know how many of you know uh, the comedian John Christ. He's a Christian comedian, uh, makes fun of us as Christians, like of himself and churches. And I love his sense of humor. It's a little sarcastic. It reminds me of my wife. Um, you know. So I get John really well. I've got 23 years of practice of understanding John. Um, but she showed me this video a week and a half ago. And I'm watching this, and I'm just dying rolling. And I'm like, man, this fits my sermon perfectly. So here's John in a new role as an employee of Christian Mingle, a dating service. It's pretty simple, really. I'm the uh, local rep for ChristianMingle.com. Recently, we've got some reports of people not acting very Christian on dates. So uh, new company policy. Now, whenever anyone registers for the site... Uh, They send me over to the house, and I just do a quick look around, ask them a few questions just to make sure they're Christian. Hey, uh, Brittany, I'm with uh, Christian Mingle. We just got your application. No, what do you mean? I didn't sign up for Christian Mingle. Oh, yeah, one of your friends signed you up as a joke. Okay, everybody says that. And uh, when did you get saved? I think 12, maybe. Youth Camp First Baptist Church. Okay, and uh, do you still go there? Yes, but it's not called First Baptist. Oh, so that's something more like trendy now. It's like Mosaic or Cross Point or like Watermark. Thrive Church, actually. Yeah, you walk into the building, you're not sure if it's a church or a banana republic. 
Hey, Chad, I'm with Christian Mingle. We just got your application. I just need to come over quick, ask you a few questions. Well, just take a look around the house. Okay. Just make sure everything's good. Okay, Is right. this even legal? Pretty fast Wi-Fi you got here. You got a filter on this thing? I'm gonna give you a mainstream band. You give me the Christian equivalent. Justin Timberlake. Toby Mac. Katy Perry. Francesca Battistelli. Uh, Nickelback. Okay, and uh, Switchfoot. Switchfoot. If I could just get a couple of dates of attendance for you here, just for background. Uh, Choir of the Fire? 98. Uh, True Love Waits? 2000. Promise Keepers? 04. Passion Conference? 2010. And Catalyst? Pre-registered last week. Anything information we need to know in here? Oh, what do we have here? That's gonna be a problem. While I was having a look around, I did find your phone. You took my phone? Yeah, just a couple things quick I want to go over with you. Looking at here, uh, Tinder and Snapchat are on page one, and your Bible app is on page two in a folder, and it needs to be updated. Look, Google Plus? I mean, Christian or not, Who's using Google Plus? In 2011, I noticed that you favorited a tweet with a swear word. Okay. Mission trips? Uganda, 2009. Dominican Republic, 2011. Oh. And World Race, 2013. Okay, so two? No, that's three. Okay, the World Race. Uh, I'm talking about real mission trips. We don't count church-sponsored sightseeing tours. Oh, what do we got here? That's gonna be a problem. We've heard it all recently. We've got reports of people going to R-rated movies. Hold on, Left Behind, is this the Kirk Cameron version? I don't think so. Okay. We've heard people not praying before meals. Let's say you're a nice young Christian woman and we're on a Christian mingle date. Things are going well and we're back at your place eating popcorn and watching Fireproof. Is this okay? Yeah. Okay, love the book collection. Uh, these candles are a little too Catholic-y for me. What about this? Sure. No! And Michael's or Hobby Lobby? Hobby Lobby. And Alta or Sephora? Sephora. Wrong. Trick question. Christians shouldn't be that concerned with outward appearances. Are you serious? Walgreens is fine. Target, maybe. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Love's like a hurricane. I am a tree. I can't feel my face when I'm with you. But I love Well, you shouldn't love it, and you shouldn't know that song. Is that safe for the whole family? I don't think so. I'm going to be real honest with you, Brittany. Uh, I just... I'm not seeing the fruit. I don't know what else I can tell you. I... I volunteer at a soup kitchen on Thanksgiving. I work in the church nursery every week. I got a Bible verse tattooed on my shoulder. In Hebrew. Okay, Republican or Democrat? Republican. Global warming. No evidence. Stem cell research. Don't know what it is, but I'm against it. Guns. Love them. Obama. Hate him. Welcome to Christian Mingle. I mean, I hear what you're saying, and on paper, things look great, but uh, I gotta be real honest with you. Uh, yoga pants? Like, I... Personally, I just don't see how someone could be a Christian and wear yoga pants. If there's anything I can do to prevent someone from a life of destruction, I feel like my work here is done. And I'm out of here. Don't even bother reapplying until you get rid of those yoga pants, get some Don Miller books added to that collection, you get a letter from a compassion child up on that fridge, okay? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Isn't it true, though? I mean, just like that video, don't, don't we tend to judge other people and sometimes ourselves based on these external things? Do we have the right books? Do we watch the right movies? Do we listen to the right music? Do we go to the right conferences? Do we have the right experiences? What's our church attendance? All of these things, right? We, we use these outward um, external behaviors and practices to determine if somebody's a good Christian or not. I mean, I mean, just as I sat in the coffee shop typing away on my phone, you know, I thought, okay, here's some things that I've, I've experienced, I've thought myself, or, and I've, I've had other people say about what determines a good Christian or not. You know, a, a good Christian definitely would never sin in any form or fashion. You're, you're going to be perfect all the time, right? 
a good Christian, man, you know, you better clean yourself up or else Jesus isn't going to love you. I mean, if you're a hot mess, Jesus can't love you. You've got to fix yourself first. A good Christian always believes in, in a literal seven-day creation and that the earth is only 6,000 years old. You question that, man. You're not a good Christian. You better have the same political stance as Jesus, right? Which, by the video just said, he's Republican. So, <laughs> insider tip, he's probably an independent third party, just saying. I don't think he's lining up with either one. Good Christians ex better accept that, that the United States is God's chosen nation and the uh, U.S. citizens are God replacing Israel as God's chosen people. You better speak out passionately and, and vehemently and frequently on all the right hot-button issues or else you're not a good Christian. You better not shop at Target, better not drink Pepsi, better not go to Disney and any other business that doesn't line up with our faith. And then when it comes to your kids, you better homeschool them or Christian school because public school is for Satan. Like there is no way that you can raise a good Christian kid in public school, right? I've had that. I've had that thrown at me. I'm like, what the heck? For real? You're going to judge me because of where I put my kid in school? You know, but we do this. We, we use all of these, these external measures to determine somebody's faith, to determine the depth of their love for Jesus. You know, this just becomes really unbiblical, unspiritual, unhealthy. Our text today that we're going to get into is going to address some of these traditions and practices that, that, that at first were very good and seemed good on the outside. But over time, we discovered that their, their intention, what God originally designed them for, was not what the Jews were doing. And it is, we're going to wrestle with some things. We're going to discover, we're going to be challenged in why we do certain things and why we don't do other things. It's going to challenge us today to, to truly consider what makes somebody a good Christian. But there's some tension I just got to be honest with you, there's, there's some tension as I deliver this message today. Because we are, as followers of Jesus, we are called to a higher standard. There are things that we read in this book about how we're to live our lives and rules and regulations for conduct and, and, and all of these things. We are called to live based on a higher moral standard than the world around us. I mean, I mean, look at Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he takes, you know, common Old Testament teachings and, man, he just elevates it. And he challenges the audience. He says, you know, you've heard it was said, do not murder. But I tell you, Jesus says, don't even get angry with another person. How, how is that possible? You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I tell you, don't even look lustfully at another woman. Uh, you've heard it said to love your, your friends and, and seek out revenge on your enemies. Jesus says, I say, love your enemies. Serve your enemies. It's almost an impossible task to live based on the, the standards that God has set for us. If we're honest today, the truth is we're all hypocrites. We all fall short. My, my parents, you know, I, I, many of you know I didn't grow up in the church. And uh, one of the reasons why my parents, when they were a young couple, uh, my older brother and sister were babies, uh, they encountered some Christians that were very hypocritical. And they said, if this is what Christianity is all about, I don't want anything of that. Now, there's two sides to that story. Number one, those Christians, I don't know who they were and what they did, but if they were being hypocritical, yeah, I mean, you can't be living against biblical standards. But on the other side, my parents didn't understand grace and compassion that everybody's a hypocrite, that we all fall short of the glory of God. Paul teaches us that in Romans. We all know that the one and only answer to all of our problems is Jesus. 
We've been hearing that over and over and over in this Colossians series. It's Jesus plus nothing. Jesus is supreme. But then, even though we know that, we do this weird thing. We add to it. We say, yeah, it's, it's all about Jesus. But it's also Jesus and better reading your Bible daily. It's all about Jesus, but be at church. It's all about Jesus, but better not drink alcohol or go to an R-rated movie. It's all about Jesus, but you better be self-disciplined, good works, and make sure that you're living sinless. It's Jesus plus blank. We all do it to ourselves and to others. So let's take a look at our, our scriptures today. If you have your Bibles, Colossians chapter 2, it'll be up on the screen. You can find it on version as well. But the Apostle Paul has been writing, and he's, he's writing to this church and saying Christ is supreme, and he's addressing some false teaching of the Gnostics uh, who were leading people to be Jesus plus other things. And so we read this in, starting in verse 16 uh, of Colossians chapter 2. He says, Don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, or for not celebrating certain holy days, or for new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying they have had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they're not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. You, Paul says, have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following such rules of the world, uh, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that, that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise, but they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline. But they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Let me just kind of unpack that for us this morning. Uh, help you explain what Paul is addressing and challenging here. So uh, if you go back to the Old Testament, the Jews had these, these laws, moral and, and ceremonial and spiritual laws, and they had these festivals. And these things were, were becoming, unfortunately, warped over time to be the measure of their faith in God. It was this external uh, measure of their spirituality. Look at verse 16. It says, Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. If you go back to the Old Testament, you know that God gave us the Ten Commandments, the foundation of the law. And, but then the rabbis went on and they added hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rules and regulations on top of those Ten Commandments, trying to, to cover the basis for anything that a good Jew may encounter and need protection from. In fact, they, they gave rules and, and regulations about what food you could eat, whether what animals and birds and fish of the sea. They, they talked about what clothing you could wear. Don't, don't wear clothing with two different types of fabric in it. They talked about what you do if you get a rash. They talked about where you can literally sit and sleep. They had rules for that. I remember years ago, I read a book written by a New York Times bestselling author. Um, not a Christian, um, but he wrote this book, and it's called A Year of Living Biblically. And he just had this idea of, of, I want to live for one year, 365 days, based on Old Testament standards and rules and regulations. And so he discovered what food he's supposed to eat according to the Old Testament law. And he discovered what type of clothing he's supposed to wear. And he discovered that, that you're supposed to, if you encounter somebody who's had an affair, who's committed adultery, you're supposed to stone him. So he, he kept a pocket full of pebbles. And he was sitting on a park bench in New York City and struck up a conversation with a guy. And the guy admitted that recently he'd had an affair. So the guy pulls out the stones and psh, throws them at him. He's like, I discovered people don't like being stoned. I don't know why, you know? It's Old Testament law. 
But he, he went on and, and he shared, and his wife is, uh, has a really uh, interesting sense of humor. Um, I, I saw my wife in her. Um, it was kind of funny because I see Karen doing this to me. So he was learning, and he discovered that you weren't supposed to sit on a chair or sleep anywhere where a woman who is having her time of the month uh, has sat. And so he shares this with his wife, like, hey, look, this is what the Old Testament law says. So in her weird sense of humor, she proceeds to sit on every chair in the apartment and to lay on every bed in the house so that he had to stand for like seven days. And he's like, really? Like, you did this to me? I, I, man, that was, I love that moment. But the Jews didn't stop there. They didn't just stop at moral laws and ceremonial laws and purification laws. They had all of these annual festivals that they celebrated, and they were all designed with good intentions to remind them of what, Jesus, what God has done for them. And so you have the Sabbath, one day out of every seven you rest. You had the Sabbath year, one year out of every seven years you let the land rest. And the year of Jubilee, which was every 50th year, you were supposed to do certain things. They had new moon celebrations and Passover and unleavened bread and the first harvest and the full harvest and trumpets and the Day of Atonement and then shelters. And, and, and these began to be developed and practiced over time throughout Old Testament into New Testament time when Jesus comes on the scene. And he, he doesn't abolish these things. In fact, he fulfills them. He, he knows that we as humans can't meet all of the law and the requirements. So he steps into that space and fulfills them for us. And as a result, we no longer have to. And as the, the gospel spread beyond the Jews to the Gentiles, we see that there's some lessening of these festivals and these restrictions. But then in Colossians, the, the Gnostics have come along. And they said, no, it's not just Jesus. If you want to be a true follower of Jesus, Jew or Gentile, then it's Jesus plus. It's Jesus plus dietary restrictions. It's Jesus plus religious festivals and new moon celebrations and Sabbath days. And Paul, in this section, gets to the heart of his letter to the Colossians to address this heretical false teaching. Because what he's pointing out to us is that these external measures, while they, they were designed with a specific purpose and they were, they were good in their intent, had, had become warped over time and they lost the reason for those things. Paul goes on, he says that, that these existed as shadows pointing us towards Jesus. Look at verse 17. Paul says, these are shadow of the things that were to come. The, the reality, however, is found in Christ. What, what the Jews and the Gnostics didn't understand was that all of that law, all of the restrictions, all of the festivals were designed to point them towards the Messiah, to point them towards Jesus. They were the shadows. Jesus was the substance. We, we do this game in youth ministry every now and again where we'll put a, a picture of a shadow up on the screen and the students have to guess, you know, what is that thing. So, you know, it's Squidward or, you know, Batman or Mickey Mouse, right? And so they see the shadow and, and then they guess and then we put the real image, the substance of that shadow up on the screen. Let me illustrate it this way. It'd be like taking your kids to Disney and your kids are, are huge Mickey Mouse fans. They cannot wait to see Mickey Mouse, and you discover as you go that there's hidden Mickeys all over the place. And so you're all excited when you see these little hidden Mickeys all over Disney. And then, and then you're walking down Main Street and kids are looking down because it's hot and it's been a long day. And they're complaining because it's the happiest place on earth, right? And <clears throat> been there, done that. I've also done Disney without my kids. It is the happiest place on earth when. So I'm just saying. But they're walking down the street, Main Street, USA there. And all of a sudden, they see the shadow, the ears, appear on the ground. It's 
And your kids start freaking out. It's Mickey. Look, it's Mickey. Mom, Dad, look, it's Mickey. And the whole time, Mickey Mouse is standing right here, casting the shadow down for them to see. And you're, as a parent, you're like, yeah, that's great. That's a shadow, but you got Mickey right here. And they're like, no, but it's the shadow of Mickey. Oh, my gosh, it's the shadow of Mickey. This is what the Jews were doing. This is what the Gnostics were teaching. They were trying to dial the church down towards that shadow and not towards Jesus. Romans, Paul writes, and he says, The law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. And so when, the Je- when Jesus comes along, the substance, the shadows become unnecessary. Jesus, the, the light of the world, comes in and casts aside all shadows. The full substance has arrived and these shadows are no longer relevant like they used to be. And, and guys, I know this is hard for us to accept And I'm not talking about Jewish people. I'm talking about us today who like rules and regulations and checklists of things to follow. And we like to hold on to these because they're easy to understand. They're easy to wrap our head around. We like rules and regulations. It it provides us with a framework for our faith. The problem, though, is that if we do this, if we embrace the shadows and not the substance of Jesus, our faith can become ritualistic. We can become completely external, and Jesus can never impact us internally. Our faith can become dry and lifeless. It's one of the main reasons why Jesus struggled with the religious leaders of the day. In in the scriptures, we see Jesus reserve some of his harshest words for the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, because he couldn't stand how their their faith was this rote, mechanical, passionless form of life-keeping, law-keeping. They would, they would bend and flex the rules to, to make themselves look pious, but inwardly, they were what Jesus called whitewashed tombs. They looked great on the outside, been painted up, decorated, but inside they were completely devoid of life. They were dead. Read the words in Mark chapter 7. Jesus says, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips. But their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. You see, the the Pharisees had developed a way to look godly without really preferring and prioritizing God in their hearts. They were were spiritually disconnected from Jesus, the substance of their faith. They were focused exclusively on the shadows and became what we call today legalists. Uh, John Piper defines legalism as this. It's the conviction that law-keeping, rules and regulations, is the ground for our acceptance with God. It's it's a failure to be amazed at grace. I love the way he wrote that. The legalist isolates the law from the God who gave the law. He's not so much seeking to obey God or honor Christ as he is to obey rules that are devoid of any personal relationship. There's no love, there's no joy, life, or passion It'd be like being in a marriage where it's just a contract, where you'll fulfill all of the marital obligations, but there's no love, there's no passion, there's no connection, no relationship. 
You, you do everything that a husband and wife should do, and externally people are looking at you and going, wow, that's a great couple. But there's no emotional connection. You, you go to work, you pay the bills, you raise the kids, you mow the lawn, you do laundry, you cook, you clean. But you never actually invest emotionally, relationally, spiritually in the person that you spend most of your time with. Legalism is taking that mindset and applying it to our relationship with God where there's no love, no joy, no life, no passion. It's a popular thing to do because we can measure our faith. We can measure our spiritual life if we're legalists. We can even brag about it. We can, we can, if we're legalists, we can make it look like we're more pious than we are. We can actually promote ourselves. This is what the Pharisees, why Jesus was so upset with the Pharisees. Because this is the type of faith they practiced. We read on in the Sermon on the Mountain, Jesus confronts just three practices, spiritual disciplines of the Pharisees in giving and fasting and praying. And, and he, he points out that what the Pharisees would do is they'd be in church and the buckets would come like we pass every Sunday morning. And it would be like, stand up, go, I'm giving $1,000. And they're like, dude, wow, that guy's generous. Look at him. I wish I could give $1,000. I wish, wow, I wish I had a heart like that. And, and the God kind of, wow, that's amazing. That guy's awesome. And then Jesus comes along and he says, guys, when you give, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. It's secret between you and God. And then the Pharisees, when they would pray, they would uh, wait for the busiest time of day in the marketplace. And they would go on to the corners in their, their outfits and robes and all of this stuff. And they would pray in the street corners and cry out to God with flowery language. And, oh, God, we beseech you. Because they spoke King James Version, right? Um, <laughs> and they used all the right words. And they said all the right things. And their prayers were inspirational and just drew people. Oh, my gosh, they are amazing prayer people. I wish I could pray like them. Jesus says, you know what? When you pray, go to your prayer closet. Don't let anybody see except for God. Then you'll get your real reward in heaven. And when they would fast, the Pharisees, they would fast. They wanted to make sure that everybody knew that they were giving something up on behalf of their faith. And so they would change their clothing and they would put on sackcloth and they would put ashes on their head and they, they wouldn't put oil in their hair. And so they were disheveled and they would go around, oh, I'm giving up something for God. Whew. And people were looking at them like, wow. They, their faith is amazing. They're giving up food. They're giving up all this stuff. They've made an incredible vow to God. Oh, my gosh, they're amazing. And Jesus says, you know, when you fast, dress normal, act normal. Don't tell anybody you're doing it. It's just between you and God. But we like legalism because it makes us look good. It makes us look better. It draws attention to us. Unfortunately, it often disconnects us from Jesus as a result. And Jesus said to those Pharisees, they got all the reward they're going to get for giving, fasting, and praying. They've earned it already here on earth. There is no spiritual reward when they did that practice of drawing attention to themselves. And not only did Paul have to address this spiritual disconnectedness, but he had to address hyper-spiritualism. 
We read on about what the Gnostics were teaching. If you look in verse 18, it says, Don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They've, they've lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. So I'm just going to share something with you. I may be wrong on this. Give me the grace to be wrong, though. Okay, and I'll give you grace to be wrong sometimes as well. But I'm highly skeptical when I hear about visions and dreams and near-death experiences where people go to heaven and they encounter Jesus. I, I just am. It's just a natural bend. I might be wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that God can't use those things and doesn't use those things. But I think when we encounter them, we always have to run them through the filter of the scriptures. Because no vision, no dream, no near-death experience in heaven is going to contradict what the scriptures say, nor will it be superior above scripture. A lot of times we hear about these things and they're like, God has told me something that is above and beyond scripture. And friends, I can't go there with you. I just can't. I struggle with that. This, this book and this book alone are the inspired word of God. And so when Paul writes his letter, he's addressing the, the spiritual disconnectedness of the Pharisees, as well as the hyper-spirituality of the Gnostics, where we take our faith beyond the bounds of Jesus in Scripture. Paul was, was trying to help the church understand that Christ is the culmination of all of God's plans, all of his purposes, and that Jesus is the true center of our piety. It's not rules and regulations designed to, to demonstrate spirituality. It's an, an outward change it's an inside-out change of our heart posture towards God and others. I mean, we see this in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Paul and Barnabas have, have encountered uh, Gentiles, non-Jews, who are experiencing the presence of the Holy Spirit, and they, they don't have a box for this. It doesn't fit their worldview. And, and so they go back to the, the early church fathers in Jerusalem, and they say, what are we supposed to do with these non-Jews who are experiencing the, the presence of the Holy Spirit? And the Jews fast and pray over it, and, and they come to this conclusion like, listen, they don't, they don't have to become Jewish to be a follower of Jesus. You don't have to become Jewish to, to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to put on them the, the Old Testament law and moral and civil laws and regulations. We're not going to put on them the, the annual festivals. Here's just a, a couple small things that we think Gentiles should follow. You see, the early church fathers didn't say that those laws... Those rules, those regulations, they didn't say they were bad. They didn't say they were wrong. They were just saying we can't impose them on people who aren't Jews. We, we can't make that uh, the, the marker of true spirituality. It's what Paul goes on and he says in the next verses. Verse 20, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Uh, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. I want to key in on that, that final verse, verse 23. Paul has some very difficult words to accept in there. As he's, he's looking at how these Gnostics are teaching people to live out their faith. And he says, you have wisdom, but it's, it's the appearance of wisdom. It's not true wisdom. You have worship, but it's not God-imposed worship. It's self-imposed worship. 
you have humility, but it's false humility. And you, you, you take care of your body and you're disciplined in your lifestyle, but it's this harsh treatment of your body way beyond what God would put on us. But we like this. We like these rules and regulations because they allow us to measure our faith. They allow us to, to compare ourselves to other followers of Jesus. But friends, these things that, that seem good and helpful at times can sometimes lead us to very unbiblical and unhealthy places, very legalistic places, places where we're the center of our worship instead of Jesus. And so I want to challenge you to, to stop beating yourself up because you aren't measuring up to other people around you. And stop being a jerk to other people who aren't measuring up to what you think they should be. Discover the, the freedom that we have in Christ without adding any man-made rules, any regulations. Discover what this book has to say about our lives and live by this book. Change your opinions, your beliefs, your values based on what you see in this book. Don't change this book to fit what you want it to say. Now, th this is that tension. I'm not giving you license to sin. In fact, it's the exact opposite. I'm challenging you to live a life that is, is even more sinless and more disciplined than what many people live. I'm challenging you to, to live for Jesus and others in such a radical way that it compels you to be different than the rest of the world. But as you do this, when you fall short, and we all will, when others around you fall short, remember to live under the umbrella of grace that Jesus provides. You want to know a simple way to discover if, you're, if your faith is living under man-made rules or under God's rules? If you feel like your faith has become tiresome and burdensome, if you feel pressure to perform for others, if you feel that you've boiled your faith down to a list of things that you have to do or God won't love you, then you might be focusing on the shadows of tradition instead of the substance of Jesus. L listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 11. He says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because... I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke, Jesus says, is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Friends, rules, are, rules for conduct are not inherently bad. I mean, some rules obviously clearly line up with Scripture and line up with the character of God and Christ. Paul had, had no problem with rules as long as they were biblical. And, and those times where, where we might apply a rule that's not biblical, God, Paul tells us that we have our conscience through the Holy Spirit to determine a rule and a regulation for our own lives. But we cannot impose that on other people. It's, it's a slippery slope. There's a, a number of things that this book condones and condemns. And you can't know that unless you're in the book. But we add on to it. We make these rules and regulations. And it's bad enough when we put them on ourselves. It's even worse when we impose them on others. I think we have to be careful of that as individuals, and also we have to be careful about that as a church. 
And I feel like we do a pretty good job of this, of creating a space where the broken and downtrodden can be welcomed and loved at Great Oaks. We need to be at that church, and I believe we are, but we can slip into it at times. We need to be that church where we don't place unrealistic expectations of performance on people. That when people walk through these doors, they, they need to experience the freedom and the power of Christ, not in a list of rules and regulations to be followed. We need to become a beacon of hope and grace and freedom. If we're, if we're anything less, then we risk becoming a life-taking church instead of a life-giving church. I like what Tim Keller writes about the dangers of legalism in churches today all over the world. He says this about legalistic churches, that uh, we tend to draw conservative, buttoned-downed, moralistic people. The licentious and liberated, the broken and the marginal, avoid church. That can only mean one thing. It's the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had. Then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. This last week I started out and told you I was up in... Uh, miracle camp in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And we had four youth groups that were there for the missions part, going into Kalamazoo and serving throughout the day. And every night I would teach on a, on a different issue. And so I talked about being on mission for Jesus and talked about his mission to rescue us. We, we talked about relational poverty and how all poverty is relational. We talked about compassion and justice. And every night where I'm teaching on these things and I'm hearing stories about three out of the four youth groups who are experiencing these moments, who are getting to put into practice what they're learning every night in the chapel sessions and, and talking about people they're encountering. But there's one youth group that, that just was struggling with what I was saying. Because their project for the week, they were partnering with an organization called Jesus Loves Kalamazoo. And, and this was an organization that 10-plus um, years ago was started by two youth groups who, who developed a, a God-given burden for their city of Kalamazoo and said, we want to come together and do some street ministry and provide food for those who are hungry and, and spiritual nourishment for those who don't know Jesus. And it's blossomed into this, this huge initiative all across Kalamazoo. And, and it's a week-long initiative. Every night they have a different um, uh, party in a park, like a, a grill-out barbecue they share the love of Jesus with people. They walk the streets. They pray with people. And then every, continuing after that week, every month, they keep doing projects all around Kalamazoo. And so this team of students, they're like, man, Chris, we love what you're saying about being on mission for Jesus and, and, and compassion and poverty and justice. But, dude, all we're doing is setting up boxes in a row. We're just hanging out with church people. And all we're waiting for is that trailer to pull up at 3.30 and they load everything on the trailers and then they go and they do what you're talking about. But we didn't get to experience that. And, and so it, it just became this angst in their, their experience at camp this week. And on Thursday night, they had the opportunity. They, they skipped dinner back at the camp. They skipped the fun activities that we had. And they stayed and they followed the trailers to this city park where 2,000 people came to be fed. And when they got to the park, their job was to, to go out in small groups and break out and, and spread the word, invite people to it, and pray with people. And, and they just shared story after story after story about uh, people encountering Jesus. They had people that accepted Christ that night. They had people who were, who were healed spiritually and healed physically. And, and just this amazing experience. And at the end of the night, they're, they're packing all the trailers up. They're all done. And, and they're heading towards the vans. And they're, I mean, it's just exhausted. It's been a long week. It's their final night. They're ready to come back to camp and just hang out. And this one teenage girl, 
sees a guy sitting by himself on a porch and the Holy Spirit just tells her, go, pray, talk to him. And so she does. She walks up and a few others go with her and they come up to the guy on the porch and they say, hey, so we're, you know, we're part of this whole Jesus loves Kalamazoo thing. Is there, is there anything we can pray for you? No, no, I'm good. I'm fine. She didn't give up. She's like, no, I, I don't know. I just feel like there's something going on in your life. Can I pray for you? He said, yeah, actually. He said, you know, life has been really hard. He goes, I'm, I'm kind of a wreck. My life's fallen all apart all around me. And he said, last week I was thinking about taking my own life. I don't know why I didn't. And so they just talked to him about Jesus and the love of God and they prayed over him. No miracle occurred. He didn't surrender his life to Jesus. We don't know the end of his story. But I thank God that these teenagers didn't walk up to this guy on the porch with a clipboard and a checklist. Said, hey, we're willing to pray for you if you've fixed your life up, if you voted the right way, if you avoided alcohol and sin. Are you, are you a good Christian? Are you a good person? Because if so, then we're gonna love on you. I'm so glad they didn't do that. Instead, they allowed themselves to step into the mess and the chaos and the darkness of this guy's life. And just invited him into the presence of Jesus. That's what we have to do as individuals and as a church. It's going to be messy. It's going to be dirty. We're going to discover some shocking things about ourselves and others. But it's the way of Jesus. This morning, we're going to close out with a time of communion. Communion was something that Jesus initiated as part of one of those festivals, those annual Old Testament festivals, Passover. It was a, a festival when they remembered how God brought them out of, G, out of Egypt. So they had very specific things that they were supposed to eat and drink, all in remembrance of what God had done for them. And in the midst of this meal, he picked up bread, and, and this is symbolic already for them, but he, t he puts a new symbolism on it, and he says, this bread is going to be my body broken for you. And he takes one of the cups of wine. They had a few different cups of wine during this Passover meal. And he takes one of the cups and he says, this wine is, is my blood spilled for you. This morning, as we go into our time of communion, we're gonna sing a song. We invite you to, to get up whenever you're ready uh, to go over to the tables. We have tables in all four corners. Grab the communion, take it back to your chairs, huddle up in the corners. You can pray by yourself. You can pray as a family with friends, however you wanna do it. But just take time before you, you eat the bread, before you drink the cup. Take time to really ask yourselves, am I measuring my faith by anything other than Jesus? And am I putting unhealthy rules and regulations, unbiblical rules and regulations on other people and expecting them to be perfect before they come to Jesus, before I can love them, before I can serve them? God, Jesus didn't do that to us. Let's pray. Father, we just want to come into your presence and just thank you. Thank you that you didn't 
require us to fix ourselves, to clean ourselves up, to become perfect before you would love us. Father, forgive us for those moments that we, in our own lives, make it about Jesus plus something else. Father, help us just to, to dive deep into the well of grace that Jesus provides. And out of that, we, we have ways of living, we have conduct, we have beliefs and values, but those are not what saves us. Father, thank you that, that your word teaches us that we are not good enough, smart enough, we can't do enough good things, that it's only your son Jesus on the cross dying for our sins that makes it possible for us to enter into your presence, to be in right relationship with you. Father, forgive us when we make it anything less than that. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Go ahead and you can begin taking communion. You can do it by yourself or with your family. And when you're done, feel free to stand with us and wherever we're at in a song, join us. Catch your breath. 
says every Sunday, don't let it end here. Take what you've learned this morning. Go to your life groups this week. Talk about it. If you're not in a life group, connect. Go to Connection Central. Get plugged into one. Sit down with somebody in a coffee shop like I uh, tried to do with you this morning. Just wrestle through what are we, we adding on to Jesus. Is there anything that we're doing that we think makes us a Christian? 
that is unbiblical, anything that, that we've added beyond Jesus' death on the cross. And dive into that. As always, we have prayer workers on the side. If you need prayer for anything, you don't have to rush out of here. You can stay and they'll pray for you. But thanks for being here. We'll see you next Sunday as we continue Colossians.